Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Daniel Jevons. Daniel is the general manager for data science at Shell. Daniel, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks so much for having me. Before we jump in, I'd love to hear a little bit about your uh, your background and how you got to you know working in data science at Shell. I know previously you were the general manager for advanced analytics at the company, and you've worked in that capacity for a while. You know, tell us a little bit about uh, your background. Yeah, so it's not a, a straightforward story. Um, when I left university, I joined Accenture, um, as many of us did in in that era and uh, spend a bunch of time uh, developing big systems. And, and I guess the easiest way to describe what I was doing was data engineering without any of the tools. So we used a lot of SQL. We that were, sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough back then. We, uh, we hacked a lot of stuff together in Excel and made some crazy business insight for executives um, based on core business processes and taking raw data out of SAP. Um, it was a fun time. We used to spend most of the evenings extracting data and then run it overnight and come back and hope the results worked in the morning. Um, and, and, and that, that worked pretty well, but it was, it was a fun start and I learned a lot from that. Um, but I also got really interested in the interface between data and process. And I guess, um, the easiest way to describe my career is that I've always been in that interface. Um, and so then I then spent a lot of time learning about things like Six Sigma and lean and, and trying to apply some of those techniques into the business processes that I was extracting data for uh, and, and trying to improve the way that our business ran. Uh, and I went through a whole series of roles in that sort of area from uh, data architecture to process architecture in the CIO office in a more strategic role. And then eventually got to the point where I saw uh, back in about 2012 that increasingly there are a whole series of new tools coming out that were starting to apply uh, data science in really interesting ways to improve the way that the business ran. And what I saw was that this was gonna be a big thing and it was gonna change the way in which industry did business. And, and so I went to my manager, who was at, at the time Shell's lead architect, and I said to him, look, I see a big opportunity in this space. Would you let me go and, and start something? Uh, and he said, actually, we've, we've just created a new role. The IT executive wants to do something as well. Why don't you apply? And so I applied for what we then called the Predictive Analytics Center of Excellence lead position. Um, and I think they didn't really know what it was or what it was supposed to be. And so they appointed, so they appointed me. And, um, and I sort of went back to my roots and I said, well, what do I need to make this successful? Well, I need some good data engineers and I need some people who understand stats. Um, and so I hired a, a statistician and I, I went back to some of my old colleagues and, and brought in a data engineer and we got started. And, uh, we didn't really know what we were doing back then. We were sort of making it up as we were going along. We got a lot of input from others and talked to, to a lot of different companies. But what was really interesting was we, we we figured out pretty early on that the way this works is you focus on the value and, and actually getting good at articulating where the value is from a business use case is, is really fundamental. And what we did was we effectively built out some cases around the customer space. We also focused on uh, some work in our finance space and, and some work in the asset space. And all three of those paid pretty modest dividends pretty quickly. Um, 
And that gave us a bit of a mandate and a bit of a momentum to start to grow. Um, and I think maybe skipping forward a little bit, we went through a couple of years of sort of modest growth. But what where it really changed was we we hit on something that really resonated. And we, we ran our first big project, which was focused on spare part inventory optimization. And we were able to deploy that quite quickly as a minimum viable product. And it suddenly started to make millions of dollars. And it was at that point that the game shifted. And, and suddenly this became a big thing. And it, and it became very much on the agenda of the executives. And they got very interested in what we could do. Um, and, and from there, really, the team's been growing very, very rapidly. And I've been through various incarnations of positions, as you mentioned, uh, to my current position, where I'm now running about a team of about 130 people worldwide based in four global locations, combination of data scientists and data engineers. Um, and we're running use cases right across the business. Uh, interesting. I'm really looking forward to digging into some of those use cases. I, I did want to ask, though, seeing this transition from advanced analytics COE to data science uh, COE, tell me about the the kind of background behind that change. Is it more significant than rebranding the, the 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 role and the mission or does it have a significant meaning to the way you do business well i think if you go back to the beginning we had the idea really of putting statistical methods into software applications and and deploying them to end users that was if you like the initial mission that we came up with but i think we always saw how this could evolve because even back in we're talking back in 2013 now we could see the early writing on the wall around the development of machine learning and, and also things like natural language processing and AI and, and, and the way in which this could evolve. And so we had that in mind, but we were focused very much on, on the simpler things and trying to deliver value with what we were building out then. Um, I think it's been a pretty natural evolution. But of course, as you evolve, you need to describe what you do a bit better. And, and where it started off with, as I said, deploying those statistical methods we're now deploying advanced machine learning at scale. And so we need a title that reflects that. So I think it's not that the mission or the vision has changed, but just we've managed to follow the roadmap and hence needed to rebrand. One of the things that you mentioned in your background is this. Actually, there are a couple of things that I wanted to to probe into. One is around this idea of kind of the the interface between process and you know data and analytics and how you how you apply these techniques at that interface. Uh, but you also mentioned, you know, really needing to understand the the value uh, that these types of projects can bring to the table. Uh, starting with that, you know, what have you learned about uh, kind of capturing the essence of the value proposition of these kinds of projects? So I think there's a couple of things I would say. So just linking to that process and data point, I, I find that, people tend to look at the world through one or other lens. So business folks often tend to look at it through the lens of the process and forget about the data. And, and data practitioners often come at it from the data side and forget about the process. And the answer is you've got to understand both to really be successful. Um, if I talk about that inventory use case, which I talked about as our big sort of launching case, the key there was that interface of process and data. So what we understood was the data allowed us to develop certain recommendations around the stock levels that we were operating. Um, and, and off the back of that, we could improve statistically the recommendations we were giving to the industry analyst. And that was relatively straightforward. But what we then had to do was work really closely 
with the experts in the business through, in this case, the Materials Management Center of Excellence internally, so the team that looked after materials management as a discipline, and try and work with them to say, how are we going to fit a tool into your business process? And the reason it was successful was because we made a tool which made it really, really easy for the inventory analysts to do their job. And ultimately, that's why it was so successful. So I think that's one element of how you get to the value. I think the other elements of getting to the value is understanding the friction. So again, if I use this as an example, what we understood was the inventory analyst could probably get to the same recommendations that the algorithm was making or close to, but it would take them several weeks. And that's not scalable and it's not even doable because what it what that means is it doesn't get done. So what we were what we quickly figured out was that actually understanding that friction point, which was this saves the inventory analyst time, was key to getting the value of, which also leads to better decision making and off the back of that, uh, you know, bottom line impact. So it's that friction understanding that's been really key to our journey. I think the other thing is, and, you know, maybe one of the other big learnings and learn from some of my failures here as well, often the business will ask questions which are, thinly veiled, I have lots of data looking for a problem problems. And that's the worst type of definition because ultimately more data is not better. What's better is to have better insight and that typically means small data. And so the challenge of any analytics project is taking big data into small insights, which allows someone to make a better decision. You mentioned that Better insights typically mean small data. Can you elaborate on that? I think that uh, is counterintuitive to the way we think about a lot of these problems nowadays. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not saying that you don't use a lot of data in coming to the insights, but ultimately, you know, if you look at, let's take an operator in the North Sea, for example, we're currently asking them to deal with probably 10,000 data points on any given day. So they they should be looking at the incoming variables from 10,000 different sensor feeds about their plant. No one can process that amount of data. And, and ultimately, you end up with just information overload, which means you shut down or you switch off or you manage on intuition or gut feel. Mm-hmm. And the challenge of data science is, can I take all of that incoming data that I have and turn it into the three things that that operator needs to look at? and make sure that they really pay attention to those three things because that's what we're comfortable with dealing with as human beings. So a lot of my team and the the, the thinking that we try and instill in people is, look, you've got to make it easy for your user. You know, we like our iPhones because the app is typically only giving you one or two or three pieces of information. That's what a well-designed app does. And you might deal with a lot of apps in a day, but actually each one is pretty targeted in the way that it surfaces information to you. And and that's really the same sort of thinking we try and bring into the design of the the things that we build for our business users. Uh, So I recently had an opportunity to hear one of your colleagues talk a little bit about the various use cases of machine learning at Shell uh, at a conference. And I'd love for you to kind of run through uh, that list. I mean, there were... You've got a ton of things going on in yeah, this space. Uh, can you can you give us a taste? Yeah, of course. So um, we're looking at the application of uh, machine learning into areas in the subsurface, for example, like well drilling, where we're trying to automate uh, the way in which we, we do geosteering uh, using machine learning. We're also doing work in production, looking at predictive maintenance. So in other words, how can we predict failure on pieces of equipment. That's everything from 
valves to compressors to heat exchangers and going back to the example i gave on the operator trying to give our operators really meaningful insight around the areas they need to focus on we're also looking at optimization of those assets so how can we use machine learning and other techniques to optimize the throughput of our our manufacturing equipment our production equipment um, we're working with trading uh, in a number of areas trying to improve the way in which we uh, manage our trading portfolios the way we manage risk the way in which we also make bets and take positions in the market. Um, we are looking at optimizing our lubricants and the way that we blend our lubricants, uh, effectively trying to leverage larger data sets to understand how we can make our pro products more effectively or more efficiently. We're working in uh, retail, uh, trying to develop new insights for our customers, but also trying to make our sites safer by using things like machine vision. And actually, machine vision is an area that we're looking at far more broadly because leveraging video footage across our very physical value chain is a huge opportunity. And then we're also working in the new energy space where we're starting to try to develop algorithms to charge cars more smartly uh, and, and also save our customers money in the process. So that's just a few examples. I could go on for a long time. <laughs> how, how does your organization support such a broad portfolio of application areas? Do you, are you kind of a, a embedded into the different uh, business units or business processes or uh, do you operate in a more centralized way? So, I think it's a combination. So the way I describe my team is we try and provide a technical backbone to these projects to make sure that we do them consistently. We operate with common standards and we deploy them to to a high, a high level of delivery. So we're trying to act as a true center of excellence, if you will. Um, we're often bringing in resources, I would say almost always bringing in resources from other parts of the organization. We partner very closely with our business service centers because uh, they have some great data scientists there. We also partner closely with our IT colleagues because we need them uh, to help us operationalize the things that we're building. And of course, we want business people embedded in these projects because a lot of the, a lot of this doesn't work unless you're very close to the user and the person with the problem who really understands the, the case that you're trying to develop. So our most successful stories are those where all of those ingredients are there. Um, so I think... It, it's the best way to describe it is we're involved in a lot of these projects. We're, we're providing technical assurance, expertise. We're often we're hands-on in, in terms of the delivery, but we're not doing it on our own. We, we bring together cross-disciplinary working teams to deploy the outcome. You mentioned operationalization as well as uh, technical standards. To what degree have you established a standard set of tools, practices, or a, a, a concrete platform upon which you build these types of projects? That's a great question. So I think I'll answer that in two ways. We certainly have established tools and best practices. So I, I talk about my center of excellence is having three core functions. Number one, we develop the underlying platform. We work with our IT colleagues to do that. The, the second thing is that we develop a series of use cases on top of that platform uh, to demonstrate the value of it. But we also democratize that platform to allow others to use the platform as well. And we run a network to share best practice with about 2,000 people across Shell around how we do this. So that's the, the operating model, if you will. 
Um, if you talk about the platform specifically, it's always evolving. So we built the first platform in about 2014, early 2015, I guess. Um, and of course, the technology now has moved on significantly since then. And so we're in the process of, of working through some of that and refreshing some of our tools and our ways of working. But we've had a number of core components that have been very successful and will be with us for a long time to come. Things like Alteryx and Databricks, uh, you know, have been the, the standards as well as R and Python. Um, and we've done a lot of work in, in those tools. Um, increasingly, though, we're also looking at others, uh, things like C3IoT, um, we do a lot of work with MathWorks as well. So it's it's very much we've brought together a, a best of breed tool set. And, and of course, we're really excited, as you may have heard, uh, around Microsoft and working very closely with Microsoft now to move things into more of a PaaS setup in the public cloud. And so that's very much the direction that we're heading in. And a lot of the use cases that you support are, you know, what we've come to start calling edge application. So uh, can you talk a little bit about how the IoT and edge use cases impact the requirements that you have on the underlying platform? Yeah, of course. So I think um, a couple of things. I think in the strictest sense, Shell has been an IoT player for a very, very long time. Um, and we've had a consolidated sensor infrastructure for many years. Um, it's based on a technology called OSI Soft Pi, and, and we effectively aggregate all of our sensor data into centralized repositories. And that's been a huge enabler for us because, of course, that means you don't have to deploy all the sensors and you don't have to deal with some of the IoT problems. We just pick up the brilliant work that others have done to aggregate all that data for us. So that's been a, a big play. And, and the challenge there has been making that available in the cloud and starting to leverage machine learning on top of that. And, and that's been a really exciting journey. Um, but increasingly, it's as we deploy new solutions, we also need to deploy things to the edge and in particular deploying machine learning. So the best example is some of the work we've been doing in retail recently, where we're now deploying cameras into retail sites in, in Singapore and in Thailand. And into those cameras, we actually, because the we've got six cameras generating about 200 megabytes per second in data volumes, we need to be able to filter that before we pass it into the cloud, because otherwise it just becomes unmanageable. So what we're doing is we're using effectively edge deployment and we're allowing uh, the containerized uh, cloud-based environment to push machine learning to the edge to act as a filter to allow us to only retrieve the elements that we need into the cloud for type processing in a scaled environment like Spark. So that's pretty, that's pretty cutting edge and that's pretty exciting. And that's one of the areas that I'm really enjoying working in. Um, the other example, of course, is some of the new devices that are coming online, so things like charge posts. So we're doing a lot of work around how can we deploy algorithms uh, which have full connectivity into uh, charging posts so we can optimize the way in which we provide electricity to electric vehicles. The retail application you mentioned was one that was highlighted at the Ignite conference. Can you talk about that in more detail? What are its goals? Of course. So, I mean, our retail businesses is huge. We're the largest single branded retailer in the world. Um, we operate in about 70 different markets. Um, we have about 44,000 sites and we deal with about 30 million customers every day. Um, that's an incredible scale. And of course, in that business, we want to make sure that our customers are safe and secure and that we protect them from risks. And, and, and as you will know, I mean, 
uh, having hydrocarbons there has an element of risk to it. And so we need to make sure that we're able to intervene in situations like smoking, uh, which is remarkably still an occurrence on, on some of these sites, as well as looking at other risks like um, people speeding or going in the wrong direction, which may have an impact on pedestrians going into the store or uh, situations where we may have robberies, heaven forbid, we want to be able to make sure we can detect and ideally detect the symptoms of those things about to happen so we can make an intervention. And, and so what we've done is we've developed a machine learning system that's, that's looking for some of those well-known symptoms uh, that are about to cause issues and then providing those as alerts back to the, to the service champion. So that's the, the person who looks after the customer in the store. And we're currently in a pilot phase with that. We're, we're testing it out in, in Singapore and in Thailand, as I mentioned. Um, it's going pretty well. It's early days, but it's a really exciting area for us because there's so many use cases we can think of that can help improve our retail business, but way beyond that into our production business and into our refining business and, and elsewhere. Because at the end of the day, what we've built is a standard platform that runs in the public cloud that allows us to operate all of these cases at scale on a common infrastructure. And so this particular application, as you mentioned, is based on capturing video. You mentioned that the video that's being pushed to the centralized uh, processing in the cloud is reduced bandwidth. Are you also doing inference at the edge or are you um, tell us a little bit more about how yeah. that's what's what's happening there? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, if you think about it, what we have is about six different cameras that are all pushing footage into a an edge device. Um, we've then deployed a a thin machine a machine learning model, so a, a thin deep neural network, if you will, to that edge device uh, based on TensorFlow. But it's kind of a YOLO type model. What it's doing is fast and loose inference, pulling out frames of interest and passing those frames into the cloud. We're then loading them into a blob store environment, but then automatically bring them up into the memory of the Spark cluster. And the Spark cluster is then uh, using effectively a Kafka stream, passing those through and identifying potentially uh, interesting events that we want to notify the service champion about. Those events are then pushed into a database, which provides an alert back then uh, into the service champion in a, in a dashboard, which runs on an iPad. So that's a very brief overview of the architecture, but the core elements are inference at the edge and tighter inference in the cloud to reduce false positives, and then Kafka acting as the bus to pass those alerts through into the uh, to the service champion in the form of a mobile device. And so the inference that's happening in the cloud is based on a more robust model, presumably? Yeah, it's deeper, of course, because what we've got is a smaller data volume and you can do tighter inference. So you're you're using effectively deeper neural nets to make more robust recommendations back to the service champion. And are you in any way federating the 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 training or the models, you know, pushing the, the, the knowledge in the centralized models out to the edge? Uh, periodically or training them in concert with one another? Are you doing anything in that space? So we're continually retraining based on new data and feedback from the service champion um, because both of those two things are important in refining the models. We're also working with offline training data to also try new things to try and improve the models as well and new ideas based on the new footage that we now have. 
Um, I think that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you'll hear this from a lot of people, but training machine learning is obviously, it's a bit of trial and error. You've, you've got to try a bunch of things and iterate quickly. And that's very much the phase that we're in now to try and make our models more robust. The beauty is that we have these things fully containerized though. And as they improve, we can pass those down to the edge to improve uh, the way in which they perform. Mm. Uh, on that note, how do you do experiment management? Well, it's a great question. Um, it, it's a tough one. Maybe the best way to describe it is, is what we're trying to do across the department. I mean, of course, we have design of experiments training that we roll out for a lot of our data scientists. Um, I think the other thing is that we have a setup around quality where we put in place a bunch of peer reviews to try to make sure that uh, we're doing things in a, in a, in a sensible way uh, across the team. Um, I think, though, as well, and, and this is maybe a, a bit of a non-answer, that the challenge with this is some of this is quite new for us. And so in some ways, as I said, it's a bit of trial and error as to what works, particularly given the architecture that we're using is quite new. So we're, we're, we're trying to learn a lot from the way that others are handling this. We're, we're learning a lot from other organizations who are perhaps ahead of us, um, some of the, the tech giants, for example. But I think... It would be unfair to say we've got this right. We're still very much learning. Another thing I'm curious about is the degree to which you've instilled formalized processes around screening for bias in data sets or results. In, uh, for example, in this application that's very much consumer facing and and based on video, which is We've seen recent examples of bias uh, creeping into the use of object detection, image detection, facial recognition, things like that. Uh, how, how mature would you say uh, your data science practices are in, in terms of uh, understanding and building processes in place to protect against that kind of bias? And where do you see that going? Yeah, it's, a, again, a really good question. Um, I, I'll I'll answer that in two ways. I think we've merged on, on, in my group, the statistics group and the data science group. And I think that has really helped in the way we think about quality of models, because as you can probably appreciate, the statistics group have a much deeper understanding, if you will, of the potential for bias to cause issues. So we've had a stats group since the 1970s. It's a very mature group. And I think they've really helped in terms of bringing the challenge into, into some of the data scientists who are perhaps more focused on some of the more emerging technologies and have a deeper knowledge there. So I think it's that cross-pollination between different disciplines that's helping us in the way that we develop these models. And we're trying to encourage that across the team. And in particular, I mentioned the quality initiative that we're, we're starting to roll out. We're trying to make sure that we have peer reviews to look at this and look at things like systematic bias in the way that we're developing our models. I think the other thing that's really important that we're talking a lot about at the moment is, is estimating uncertainty and distribution at the, at the source of the data sets that are coming in and really trying to understand that so you're not building in systematic bias through, through basing your models on a small set of observations. And I think in particular, one area that, that I think has a lot of promise here is using synthetic data to train the algorithms. Um, we're not there yet with that, but I think that's that's an area that we're really interested in because we think it has strong potential to remove some of those biases. 
Is there a particular use case that uh, for which you see that as being most promising? Well, I, I think it's more a cat. I mean, it's very early days with this, right? And we really don't know if this is going to work. By the way, <laughs> um, because because the question is, can you can you accurately generate enough realistic data to, to be representative? Um, I think what we're excited about is if you look at the occasional event from a machine vision perspective, um, it's very hard to get a representative set of footage around that, right? So you end up, you can end up very easily overfitting. Um, whereas I think what's what's quite interesting is if you think about um, synthetic data, you can potentially generate a vast quantity of data in a VR world that gives a real indication of uh, potentially all the scenarios in which this this could be observed and creates a much more representative data set to do a first pass training on your model. Now, we still don't think that synthetic data will take us to real world in one step. It's going to be a two step process. But if we can build that into the way we think about machine vision, it could be a real game changer, we think. But like I said, I could be wrong on this one. Yeah, no, I I, I think you're right. I agree. Um, I wonder what the, the time frame is for all of the pieces to come together. There's been some interesting results in combining synthetic data with real world data and applying techniques like domain transfer. Uh, but a lot of that stuff is really bleeding edge. And I'd love to hear if there are any, uh, you know, tools or papers or things like that, that um, are top of mind for you in uh, having looked at this. Yeah, I mean, we're, like I said, we're, we're at really early stages. Um, and all of this, we're kind of going in alone because we haven't found anything that's bang on on point yet um, mm-hmm. in, in, for what for the well not for the use cases that we're interested in and so i think it's actually an area where we think we might be able to publish some useful material that's uh that's going to that's going to drive some of the discussion in this space um so watch this space is what i would say so we talked a little bit about the experiment management side of things how do you approach model management and deploying models out to production and managing their performance over time? What kind of tooling have you built up around that and processes? That is a great question as well. So this is a real headache. So let me just be completely honest. <laughs> with you this one, right? um, you know, look, I can answer it with a simple answer, which is, you know, we containerize our models. We use things like Azure Container Services and Kubernetes to deploy them. Uh, we have we we embed metrics so we can manage it. We're doing some work looking at things like ML Flow in in Spark to help with some of this. However, I'll be completely honest and say we're actually looking at we're working with C3 IoT to try and crack this problem. And I'll I'll, I'll explain the scenario that we're working through. Um, we have thousands of valves across our business literally thousands of them. And and we want to be able to run machine learning models for every single valve. Now, every single valve is slightly different. The flow is different. The temperature, the pressure is different, right? So you basically need a model per valve, but you don't want to manually manage that because it's just unmanageable. So you need drift management. You need the ability to, to automatically uh, transfer between different types of models. You need human override on those valves to, to actually replace the model with one that you think is going to perform better. Um, you need to be able to retrain those models on a regular basis based on new incoming data sets. And you need methods to actually manage the overall performance of the system in a simple way 
that gives an end user the ability to look across the entire set of valves. So to give you an idea on a refinery, you might have 10,000 of these things. Mm. So that is a really, it's a real world problem. It's a great real world problem. It's a really exciting one, but it's also a real challenge. And so, like I said, we, we've gone and we've worked with C3IoT to, to look at, um, can we leverage their platform and their their type system to help us to manage that level of machine learning deployed into an asset where we have to be able to support a user interacting with that every day? Right. Adding the edge components to the model management challenge makes it a lot more complex you know, relative to serving up models to some centralized website or via centralized website, I can definitely see where the complexity comes in there. You mentioned the, the, the valves and building individual models for these valves. I'm assuming that's kind of this digital twin type of uh, use case. How do you end up using those, those digital twins? And do you, do you like that terminology? Do you use that internally or not really? Yeah, we, we do. I think the problem with the terminology is that everyone means something different by it. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's everything from a simulated set of the physics of the operations of the system through to a 3d model based on CAD drawings and, and, you know, all the variations in between. So you have to be a bit careful with it. And, and we're trying to standardize on a definition internally so that we can say, this is what we mean. And then it has these attributes. That's the current discussion that we're going through. Um, so interested if anyone else has, uh, has has had a similar problem. But what we're trying to do really here is it is kind of a digital twin setup. We're, we're taking a hierarchy of the equipment that we have on the site, and then we're effectively tagging the things we want to monitor with a model against that hierarchy. And then we're we're able to manage that basis the the way in which the asset is set up. But it tends to be specific pieces of equipment, um, and of course. Within the context of that, we're taking the historic data feeds about that piece of the asset, and then we're running an algorithm, typically a, a machine learning model, not always a deep learning model, by the way, um, against that particular piece of equipment in order to provide results back to the user. Do you ultimately end up with, for a complex piece of equipment, as you're trying to make predictions against the performance of that complex piece of equipment and ensemble of thousands or tens of thousands of submodels representing the individual parts? And have you built a framework that allows you to do that kind of thing repeatedly or are, are we not there yet? Well, so you know what's really interesting is actually we're going the other way right now. Really? Um, so one of the things that we found is that the 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 difference in performance between the, the sub models that we're building out, you know, in the, in the complex system versus basically having a master model that cuts, cuts across all the pieces of equipment is not differentiating. And of course, having the master model is much, much easier. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're currently, we're currently playing around with that, but we actually think that more and more we'll be moving towards master models for certain things. But to be honest, it depends because it's not a one size fits all for certain pieces of equipment. We found having one model monitoring a whole uh, sort of train, if you will, works really well. And for other things, you've really got to monitor that piece of equipment using a very specific model. So I think we're, I would say we're learning all the time with this because we're, we're, we're sort of looking at it. Um, we're learning as we go. And it's something we, we believe quite passionately in, right, which is you go through a process and you iterate on that and, and you don't overthink it. 
and you may try three, four different approaches even within the same team. And that's okay, you know, because I don't think anyone's done this, not, not at the scale that we're trying to do it now. Shell was actually featured pretty prominently at the, this conference we keep referring to, the, the Microsoft Ignite conference in the Satya's keynotes. Uh, yeah. And one of the examples was the use of uh, not just the work with C3IoT, but their recent acquisition of Banzai and uh, some of the work you're doing around reinforcement learning and the the application of that. That's also, you know, like all of the things we've talked about, very new. Um, yeah. But can you talk a little bit about that work and uh, what you've seen there? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what this came out of was was basically the idea of the self-driving car. And, and the idea was basically, well, if, if they're making self-driving cars, why can't we have self-driving wells, basically? Um, because if you think about it, in, in some ways, it's a simpler problem to solve. Um, there's less dimensionality to it. There's less uncertainty to it in some ways. Uh, there's less unexpected events that you still have them. Um, and so effectively, what we've been trying to do is, is develop, uh, based on a, a three-dimensional model of the subsurface, a set of automated geo-steering algorithms that allow us to to move the drill bit through the subsurface in line with the well plan. And, and that's the simplest way to describe it. Now, if you think about that, it's actually a very, very suitable problem for reinforcement learning because it's it's got a very simple um, penalty function, right? Out of well plan, you, you assign a, a penalty and, and off the back of that, you can very, very quickly start to bring the well back into, into line as you train the algorithm over time. And, and what we found was that the, the bonsai solution um effectively gave us the the opportunity to do that very easily um at scale and, and we could it's one of those things you can do this yourself but actually if someone's built a framework for doing this at scale um it's going to be much easier for us to do that as we go forwards rather than having to maintain our own software and and that was something that was very appealing about bonsai that's why we started working with them and and so, you know, we're now looking at them to, to help us to scale this as we as we look at, you know, applying it into different scenarios across our business. So in formulating this uh, self-driving well problem, what are the the different control variables? I imagine there are tons, but what are the kinds of things that we're talking about, like uh, rotational speed of the drill bits and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. And and sort of the geospatial positioning, the the azimuth, et cetera, right? You're, you've got a whole series of different measurements that you're taking all the time. Um, and, and the best way to describe it, right, is it's like driving forward, um, but you're only getting the data uh, in retrospect. And, and that's the challenge with it, because what happens, of course, is the data comes off the bit and you get it kind of a foot behind where you are, if, if you see what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And so that that's quite an interesting, an interesting dilemma in the whole process. Um, but certainly it's it's looking at a multi-dimensional, three-dimensional problem set based on your understanding of the subsurface continually and and constantly iterating and adjusting, as well as as well as trying to to really look at uh, the optimum way of doing it, because it's not always intuitive, because obviously um you'll go. This is directional drilling. It's not. It's not only uh, sort of linear drilling. So your 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 speed also changes depending on uh, the way in which you're drilling, and obviously that has knock on effect from an optimization perspective. Mm -hmm. And so with reinforcement learning in general, bonsai in particular, this the notion of using simulation is key. Uh, did you already have a simulation of this in place? And were you able yeah. to easily use that uh, with reinforcement learning? 
So I think, I mean, the, the, the beauty of this is we have a lot of uh, internal simulations set up for this, of course, mm-hmm. because because more or less everything that we do here has been looked at and has been simulated in the past for optimization purposes. So if you take things, something like rate of penetration, we have endless simulations of the way in which that can be optimized. And so we can bring some of those things into something like bonsai by having that very good understanding of, of the first principles simulators that we've developed over many years, as well as, of course, simulators of the subsurface, which is another element of the simulation. So I think that's that's been the real benefit. And it's the, it's the bringing together of our existing scientific knowledge with the new technology of reinforcement learning that's, that's really driving this change. Uh, well, Dan, we covered a ton of ground here. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Any kind of final thoughts or words of wisdom to folks that are, you know, maybe at, at an enterprise that doesn't quite have as much experience with uh, this intersection of data and process as uh, you and Shell? Uh, what should they be thinking about? I, I think it always comes back to really understanding your business problem. I mean, I, I know I talked about that earlier on in the call, but the thing I'd encourage you is that, you know, I talked about a lot of sophisticated techniques. I talked about machine vision. I talked about reinforcement learning. A lot of the biggest value things we've done are actually the simplest things. Um, and so, you know, if, if you're feeling, uh, you know, like you're just getting started with this, and I know a number of companies are, actually the, the biggest thing is understanding where the big value is for your business and, and trying to solve the problem in the simplest way you possibly can. Um, there's a, I've got a lot of time for deep science. I, I absolutely love it. As you can probably tell, I, I love some of the things we're doing. But I do think there's there's so much low-hanging fruit in this space that getting started. And also, I would say there's some great tools out there that make it very accessible uh, to get stuck in very, very quickly. So we've had a great relationship with Alteryx over many years, and we've had huge value from them uh, just because it makes it so easy for citizen data scientists in the business to get stuck in and start to add value. And I think a lot of this is about a cultural change trying to drive cultural change across an organization where data and data science is central to the way that we do business. Um, that's something which is exciting. It's, it's essential for any company, I believe, but it's also more and more accessible um, with the latest advances in technology. Yeah, we didn't get into the cultural side of this, but your colleague Yuri spent a lot of time talking about that in a session that I had with him at uh, Ignite, clearly something that's very central to the way you think about scaling data science and machine learning at Shell. Yeah, it's massive. I mean, I think um, the biggest problem of this is, is adoption and belief and adoption in the sense that um, how do you persuade people to use the output of a data science project? And the second is, do you believe that this is going to improve the way in which you do your work and make your life easier? And, and I think it, it also comes down to we've got to learn as an organization to work in a way that's for more familiar to software houses. So things like you know developing minimum viable products, having strong product ownership, iterating quickly, failing fast, being able to pivot, um, having the setup in which you are willing to work with a minimum viable product, not tell the people that developed it that it's rubbish. Those sorts of things are not commonplace and not comfortable for an organization like ours. And so it's as much a challenge of building an understanding on both sides, building an understanding on the business side of the way in which we need to work and building an understanding from the way that we're working with the challenges that the business people have every day and bringing those two worlds more closely together. And it, it's an exciting challenge, but it's one that's going to take time and it, it's it's core to how we're trying to get the value out of what we're doing. 
Fantastic. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.